House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm at the controls, Al Warren, and uh, today the room is full, uh, but that's okay. Uh, everyone's social distance, at least six feet, and we have to. Uh, Michael Hawley is here, and, you know, he's recovering from his uh, COVID-19 infection and yeah. shots. And shots. So I'm fully vaccinated COVID, and uh, so I got uh, superhuman T-cells. I'm ready to go. That's why you went to Florida for a week. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> and so you need you need two shots, and you need to already have had it in order to get away with Florida. Hey, oh, were yeah. they wearing masks down there, or was it not really going on? Uh, per county, the uh, and that's how they do it. In the counties, some counties are really strict, and some counties, they're, uh, the, the masks, they don't have masks. <laughs> so it's both ways. So. Kind of goes, they don't wear underwear or masks. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And, of course, we've got the martini man in Boston making martinis. I'm right here making dirty martinis. Yeah. Well, if you're messing <laughs> them, they are dirty. <laughs> oh, I don't even want to say it. But you took your wife to get her first shot. But you haven't got a she, shot. No, no. She's the guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> you got a spare in the trunk, I know. That's right. We've we got to see what happens. <laughs> and then, depending upon what happens. Just in case. Make yeah. sure you get the yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Call the <laughs> Have it on speed dial. Uh, now, and of course, the fourth in the room is, is, is the man of the hour. Now, he is uh, a writer. Believe it or not, we actually have a writer on. Of course we do. Uh, but he writes uh, detectives. Um, so this fits with uh, Martino, uh, with his wife in the trunk, or his girlfriend. That's right. Oh, somebody's <laughs> Um, so, we're going to welcome to the show Terry Shepard. Thank you for being here. It's, it's a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, you know. <laughs> got to fill it with something, right? you got to fill the, the yeah. time. Yeah. I know. It's terrible. When someone cancels on us, it's, it's like, we have two cancellations this week. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's my attitude. I don't know. <laughs> I thought I was nice. Um, so, let's talk about Terry. Terry, Terry, Terry. So, you write... Uh, but it sounds like you had quite a career in the corporate world. So what caused you to go from corporate world to writing? I came kind of the, to the end of my career. Um, it was uh, a therapeutic decision. I came to Florida, back to Florida where our kids were, after many, many years in the corporate world. And I was at loose ends. And um, all of my life, I wanted to make a difference, and I felt like I wasn't doing anything. So after a, a several long conversations with my shrink, who said, you spent your whole life asking everybody else, what would you do if you were working for love and not for money? What's your answer to that question? And I had no answer, because I'm sure like you guys, I mean, part of the way men are wired is that we're wired to support our families, and for five decades, that's what I did. I took corporate jobs, and I went ev everywhere in the country, everywhere in the world to do that. But all of a sudden, I find myself coming back to Florida where my kids and my grandkids live and having the freedom to be whatever I wanted to be. And so I decided to try writing for a year, writing fiction. I have, um, uh, you know, I have a bunch of nonfiction out there from my other iterations, and I always enjoyed telling stories. So um, that's what got me started. Wow. Uh, so... So you got fired, basically. So ah! <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, the uh, 
We were actually we were actually caregivers for my dad. I mean, full full disclosure, we, we were staying where he was so that I could be part of his final lapse. And um, after he passed away, there was no reason for us to stay up north where it was so cold all the time. And our kids were down here. So instead of flying down here once a quarter and taking them out to dinner every night, we decided we'd move down here and become full-time babysitters for our grandkids. Yeah, start doing their laundry, too. <laughs> right, I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when you say that, uh, when you say that, you know, after your father passed, which is, you know, and, and caretaking and all that, um, and then you got into writing, um, I wonder if that, if that kind of an event also helped you become a writer, if you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, the my kind of entry into that world was, you know, how things happen, guys. I mean, it's, it's um, this fate stuff is hard to even predict, but I started writing, you know, I've, I've been writing both fiction and nonfiction since I was a kid. We always had the assignments to do the stories, and I had a wonderful uh, advanced placement English teacher in high school you know, who taught us about Ray Bradbury's Rocket Man by playing Elton John. So I learned to love really, really good fiction um, pretty young, but I spent my whole life trying to make money. Um, so to be able to actually have time to craft the stories and try and understand all the nuances of this art really was fascinating for me. And what I discovered was it was a whole new world. I mean, you all know, I mean, it's, it's different than anything else. And it's a very supportive community. There seems to be way too much demand and not enough good supply. So I was happy to jump in. But you know, okay. So when when but when you're writing now, um, I've noticed. Okay, so you you deal with kind of some darker territories. Like when we get into chasing Vega, you're you're talking about you know meth bust that goes bad, and we've got detectives and stuff like this. So this this takes a certain amount of um, let's say, personal content in order to make it real. Because, you know, when we're talking fiction, the, the, the one thing that works is your characters have to be real. They have to feel something, and people have to be able to relate to them. What part of you goes into this book? You know, that's a great question, Al, because the way that I've always approached every thing that I've done in my life is I've tried to find the best people in the world that are in that space already and try and learn from them. So one of my friends uh, is a Latina detective. She's been one for 25 years, recently retired as a lieutenant, and her stories are just horrific about the, you know, the prejudice and the hazing and the horrible things that happened to her during that time frame. But she's also one of the most positive people you'll ever meet and a really, really good cop. I mean, she's the best cops are great psychologists, um, you know, they do all this stuff that we don't fund. They do social work. They do everything. And that's what she was. So the way that the whole Chasing Vegas story came to be was that I was sitting down with her one day, and I said, what if I could rewrite some of your experiences with happy endings where you actually prevailed? What would that sound like to you? So she said, I'll be delighted to tell you everything you need to know. And that was really important because she was Latina, and I'm not. I mean, there's we definitely have Latin blood in our, you know, when we've all done the ancestry DNA, and my daughter-in-law has very uh, a very heavy connection to the Latino community, but I didn't want to be able to, I didn't want to write anything that wasn't authentic. I didn't want anybody in that community or any of the communities I was focusing on in my characters to say, 
number one, you're expropriating our culture, and number two, you got it wrong. So for me, it was more about the research, and I found myself getting into the heads of these people and just fascinated by how it all worked. Um, so from a personal, to, to directly answer your question, from a personal standpoint, for me, I think it was more about um, exploring maybe dimensions of my own personality that I didn't know existed. Ah, but then when when do you get the nerve? Like, <laughs> I, this is a, this is an important one here because so when you start saying you're learning things about yourself, some of them you didn't even know were were existent. Um, that means you're all of a sudden writing into a book that goes into the public um, things about yourself. You're exposing feelings. You're exposing a lot of things that you deal with in your real life. So when do you get the courage to do that? Yeah, I think that's a challenge that every writer has. Um, you know, one of the things that I do is I, I host a podcast called Authors on the Air. So I've talked to 47 different authors in various stages of their careers. And a commonality for many of us is that we write to uh, resolve the unresolved. So part of what goes into our stories are things that we're trying to figure out. Uh, and in my case, um, it was a little different because I've always been a movie fan. So when I think about stories, I imagine what they would look like on the big screen. So in every chapter of Chasing Vega, I was imagining sitting in that theater, seeing that actual scene playing out before me and wondering what happens next. So it was a lot less introspective than I expected. One of the things that I did find was that I developed a lot more empathy for the human condition because the people in my cast, Jessica's Latino, her sidekick is LGBTQ, the, um, the guy that I uh, put in as the medical examiner was on the autism spectrum. So just as part of that research, I did deep dives with friends and acquaintances who live those lives. And um, I learned a lot about, you know, a lot about differences, but a lot about what we share in common. And... The main goal of the book ultimately turned out to be creating characters that people who fall into these categories could say, hey, maybe I could be that hero too. And when I get feedback from my readers that that's what they're thinking, that's how I know I'm, I've been successful. But doesn't it make you feel a little bit vulnerable um, exposing this to your readers and, and getting feedback from them? You know, I spent so many years in the cable industry raising your rates every year that I was getting yeah. yelled at every 12 months, and <laughs> you learn to, to deal with that stuff. And, you know, as, as a human being, when we get feedback, the idea is to peel back, try and peel, first away, peel away the emotion, right, because you don't want that to be controlling you, but to find out what there is in everything that can be useful to you. So from writing for me, as, as, as I explore the characters that I'm developing and the places where I put the stories, is what can I learn about that that can make my life better but ultimately can make me a better servant? I think our purpose on this, in this life is to ease suffering for others. And for a lot of people who like to read this stuff, it's an escape. I mean, we're living in a really unusual and uncomfortable time right now. And if I can provide a few hours of escape and adventure for somebody where they can go into a different place, and inhabit a different character and watch that person prevail, that feels pretty good. Uh, you have a serial killer. Are you um, trying to get into the mind of someone that 
lacks completely a complete remorse. How did you do it, or was it a difficult thing for you? I really love people that do the wrong things for the right reasons. And Vega, who is the antagonist in the story, is exactly that. She does not like the fact that our system allows so many guys to get away with bad things. So she dispatches her own justice. But the darker part of, of her, I think part of her flaw, is that um, you know she's seduced by this guy who wants her to take on a, a, a major, major terrorist project, which can significantly harm the entire economy of the United States, and she signs on for it. She does it, and um, I'm not sure why she does it, um, but uh, my sense is it's for the money. There was a lot of money, money into it, um, but what fascinated me about her was her own vulnerability. You know, she really wanted justice to be meted out, but she couldn't do it in a way that was acceptable to the rest of the community. She had to do it in her own way, her own creative way. And that was, I think, the pressure between her and Jessica. All these books end up in single combat at some point in time, and you have these two people that really share a common goal. They want to see people who have done things, made bad decisions, pay for those bad decisions. They want to see karma take place, but they come at it from two vastly different positions. I was just going to say, when you're, so when you're writing this story, um, and you say you picture the big screen, you picture how it would look in the movie. Uh, does that, that make it difficult to transpose it into a book? Do you know what I mean? It's a different type of writing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's actually, when I get stuck, I go to the screenplay. You know, I'll try, and, I'll try and write the scene as if it were on the big screen. And I was having that problem with uh, Chasing the Captain, which is the sequel to Vega coming out next month. Is that I got in the second act, and I realized that I'd really written a very good climactic scene in the second act. It ends up, it's part of the cover, and I didn't know how I could top it. So I was stuck for three months in that space and had to figure out how to write my way, my way out of it. And um, I ultimately, you know, I asked a lot of people. Part of the, the secret for me in my writing career is surrounding myself with a really good team of advisors, editors, helpers, and that kind of stuff. And one of those people is my story consultant. I pay a story consultant to look at the book help me figure out character development um, and plot holes and stuff. And she's very good. And she walked through it with me and she said, you know, if you're not sure where to go in the forward part of the story, go back. Put some more meat before. Figure out more about why things are happening. And um, that was what turned me loose. Because once I started, the, part of the challenge of writing anything nowadays in the thriller space is that the real world, what's going on in the real world is so much worse than anything you could devise, any plot device you could devise. So we're sitting here trying to write these things that people are going to want to connect to and have a, enough of a reason for you to want to stay with the book to see how they defuse the bomb. And, um, you know, Vega began coterminous kind of with the start of the whole COVID thing. And that, that bomb, I'm not sure if I were releasing Vega today that I would have the same thing that, that she was going after. Um, but it was, uh, it was the ultimate, you know, you start, a lot of people will do this. They'll write the first act and then they'll write the ending. I just interviewed an author the other day who does that. And I did the same thing. When I, was, when I would get stuck, I would write the ending. I knew how I wanted the book to end. So then it's figuring out, it's like, almost like a board game. 
You just got to figure out how to get to Boardwalk and Park Place and have enough money to buy it when you get there. Well, I was wondering, uh, you mentioned combat uh, between the characters. And I know Jessica Ramirez has a martial art background. And uh, actually, Michael and I both have a martial art background. I was just wondering, are you drawing from uh, some training that you've done in the past? Or is it imagination, research, or from people that you've spoken to to uh, create um, your, your fight scene? You've outed me. Yes, <laughs> I have a black belt, and um, I, I know enough to be dangerous. One of the things David, in every... Every, every situation is what you think you know is not necessarily what you need to know. So even though I, I had this, my own experience in that uh, martial art, you know, I was talking to a dozen different guys that I know that are very good in that space in other styles. And I was, as I was talking about how I would have her do things, I'd say, how does this work? Is this the right way for this, for this to happen? And I hope that I brought that authenticity because, you know, as you're describing, I, I imagine you guys reading the, the fight scenes toward the end and you're saying, okay, so is that how it really works? <laughs> and I really tried to build it based upon what they said, right? Not so much my own experience, even though I knew enough to be able to speak the language to get their sense of how it actually worked was where the real power came into the story. Mm. Interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, you guys are all tough men. That's right. Right. <laughs> I have to worry about breaking a nail in a lipstick drawer. Jeez. Although, although Al, my wife can still kick my butt because she's that she's that judo player. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, you know the you know the old saying in martial arts, David. All martial arts training does is buy you another twelve seconds to get the heck out of there. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, are they wearing high heels and spandex and? Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so, so you you put a lot of yourself into this again. So we've out at U.S. Uh, martial artist, but this is also centered around a, a meth bust. So, how long were you doing that? <laughs> well, you know, what when I was in college, I worked my way through colleges on the radio. So I was working um, weekends and nights, and I would get off at midnight. And when you come off the air, as those of you who've been in broadcasting know, your your energy level is just so high. I needed to come down. So how did I do that? I had friends in the cop shop, and I would go meet them, and I'd ride along with them for a couple hours. And, you know, we'd check IDs at bars and go through police procedure. So I had I built this network of uh, cops, and what happens over time is that broadens. So my uh, portfolio of technical consultants included people from the DEA, FBI, CIA, and these are guys that, you know, some people from the Kennedy detail, these older guys that have great stories to tell. So the first thing I would do when I was looking for beta readers is I'd take the chapters, which touched on FBI procedures and stuff, and I'd send to these guys and I'd say, did I get it right? And in many cases, the story became better because I had to make changes. These, the minutia, for example, that you guys, that Dave, you and Mark, uh, Mike know about martial arts is, is something that, you would only you would see, and you would be judging the book based upon stuff like that. Well, I got a ton of cops out there that are Jessica Ramirez's buddies because she has her own Twitter handle, and she has thousands of followers. And I got to make sure that when she's talking like a detective, that she knows what she's saying, because nobody can smell out a phony like a cop. <laughs> right? Oh yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I I did the same thing. I. 
tons of cop friends out of Seattle mainly, and um, and, I, and they get they're very involved in a lot of my writing of true crime, of course, because I use them a lot to um, not only for information on cases, but um, you know they they straighten me out and how how it should be sometimes. Um, so why don't you get into um, doing true crime? You know. Al, I have so much admiration for you for taking that on because I think that's a lot harder. Because anytime you're dealing with something that is history, there are so many more nuances and there are so many other things that you have to uncover that might not have been easily accessible when you're looking just at news stories. I think it's a much harder job to tell the truth than it is to make something up. Finally, someone understands. No, I, I, you know the, the the hardest thing I think is 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 trying to make everyone happy. Uh, when you're doing a current case and it's, it, making sure that the cops involved are, are happy with your product, the surviving families. There's there's so many elements to it. I think that's the hardest part. So it puts a lot of stress on you. Um, plus, you can't decide where it's going to go. The ending is already there. Right. Yeah, that's, that is so true. I mean, and that's the luxury that we who write fiction have is that we can take it anywhere we want. And um, I am not a plotter. I'm definitely a pantser. So uh, Vegas started out with one scene, the very first scene in the story where she tosses that first guy into the Grand Canyon. I didn't know where it was going to go from there. Um, yeah, and it, it just kind of flowed from there. <laughs> what a good way, you know, it's, that's, I've, you know, I've thought about that. A lot of your people, like you're chasing, chasing Vega, chasing Cody, so are people scared of you? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, actually from a marketing standpoint, I thought carefully about how I wanted to create my cast and how I wanted to present the series, right? So there is nothing better, one of my all-time favorite scenes is the chase scene in bullet there, oh, yeah. there's no dialogue right it's just steve mcqueen in that 68 mustang fastback versus that plymouth and it ends up with this big fire at the end but what isn't said what you see in the visuals just makes that thing incredible and chase scenes you know you heard the old saying cut to the chase that's what i try and do i mean i try and end every chapter with something that, you know, drop a hand grenade at the end of every chapter, so you at least want to turn one more page to see if they blew up or not. <laughs> yeah, but how, do you, how can you describe that? Like, so when you, like, we're all old enough here to, to know Bullet and know the chase scene and, and know all of that. There's a lot of younger ones that probably don't. Um, but how is it that you can write that into a scene, into a book? Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, that, to create that, you have to make the place that you're writing a character, you know? Yes. Yep. So, so, so that has to be very important. How, how, how do you accomplish that? Um, I try when possible to immerse myself in the actual experience. So there's a place in DuPage, Illinois, where they actually train cops. And they have a, it's the size of a huge NBA basketball arena. And it's a street scene, like you might see at Disney World. And they can set it up. For any scenario, they've got the, um, you know, the uh, uh, LED guns and all that kind of stuff that match the Glocks that the cops use. And they, they, when something goes down, they'll repeat that scenario there in a research 
situation so that they can try and break it down and understand how it all works. So I've been there, and um, I have contacts there, and actually a couple of the, the, the meth bust scene has a lot to do with what I learned there. The other thing is the driving piece. And, um, you know, I've, I've driven very fast cars at Charlotte and at Daytona, and I've been in the passenger seat and probably about a dozen high-speed chases with police officers. So I know that visceral feeling of trying to take your machine to the edge of its capabilities without it sliding into the wall. And uh, I also know the adrenaline. When, when Jess is talking about the adrenaline rush that she's hooked on, that was totally me 10 years ago. I would it was, love jumping out of airplanes. I love flying in very fast aircraft. I love driving fast cars. So I built up that base of experience, and I tried to channel as much of that as I could but then again, afterwards, I would always take it to somebody who'd actually, who's actually living it now. Because just as you said, that bullet scene, that was a movie scene that was created by a bunch of stuntmen back in, you know, the 1971, 1969. I can't remember the movie came out. And nowadays, the, the Avengers, the Marvel Universe, the DC Universe, the multiverse, there's, there's a whole different group of expectations among people. Uh, when they come to stories like these, and I wanted to make sure that I could be true to that, too. Yeah, that's a tough one, because I, I think they had to do so much more with so much less in the 60s than they do now. Did you throw off the canyon, then, to get that? <laughs> <laughs> Just curious. Any names? That was, a, that was, well, you know, there are people you think about, right? I mean, there's, yeah. uh, Larry King used to tell a story about how he ended up, you know, he, he did a uh, MC thing for a mob convention, and at the end, there wasn't any money. He, you know, they kind of called him and told him to show up, and he did. And at the end, they said, you did great. And, and Larry King said, well, I was glad to help, like he had any choice. And they said, how can we repay you? And he says, I don't know. I don't want to take any of your money. And they said, well, do you have anybody that you don't like? Yeah, <laughs> and, you know we all have that list, right? And I got—I think we, all of us that are writers admit that when we're throwing somebody off that cliff, we're thinking about somebody who did us wrong at some point in time, and we are psychologically enjoying their healthy destruction. Ah, <laughs> oh, I see. Now we get into it. That's the question I like to ask. So, because the, the very first fiction author, one of them I ever interviewed, J.D. Horn, right? Uh huh. Said, he said that uh, he would kill off people that, you know, he didn't like. It could be a rude person in a store. It could be a number of people. But it was characters in his real life. Is that where you get your characters from, especially the ones that uh, suffer? Um, you know, I try through my own reading of historic events and true crime, I, you know, I have learned about... Uh, the psychotics who don't have any capability to feel when they do bad things. And I try and channel those stories when I'm thinking about, um, you know, people that are, are getting the karma. Um, what really fascinates me more is the struggles of the good guys to try and get to the edge of the envelope without totally breaking the rules so they can't play the game anymore but doing whatever they think they need to do to try and save lives and try and protect people. And that's where the fascination is for me, because for all of us, no matter what we do for a living, we come to these um, points of 
moral confusion, right, where, we, where we're, our, our emotions are trying to make the decision for us. And that's Jessica's flaw, right? She is a family person, and once, uh, once her dad, you know, in the second act, the assassins are going for her and they get her dad instead, I mean, then it becomes personal, and she kind of loses her way. She loses her vision. And if you're a pro, that's when you start making bad decisions and get into trouble. Uh, but I love exploring that dimension. For example, Alexandra, LGBTQ, how did she become such a great cop? How did she become a forensic computer expert? And how did she cope with her family's rejection of her lifestyle? She does it with humor. She's a smart aleck. And, um, you know, the problem I had at the beginning of writing Vega was that Alexandra Clark was a much more interesting character than my protagonist. She was much more fun. Uh, I had the same problem with Joey Price, my, my guy who's on the autism spectrum, the medical examiner. He actually has fans out there who write me who are on the spectrum or have Asperger's, and they say, yeah, you know, this is what I liked about that, that scene you wrote where Joey was just sitting there listening to the people yelling at him and when he already had the problem solved. I totally relate to that. You know, that, that the challenge that I have socially in my brain, I can't connect socially with people on a level that people would consider normal, but I feel all the same things and I have all the same insights and I really appreciate the people who take the time to try and understand me and speak my language. Have someone with actual Asperger's and that you connected with, that you uh, did that, that's really impressive. Well, that I, the, the guy, he actually has a cameo. He's the, the, the guy who is the, the, runs the raft company, is the son of my best friend. And um, he grew up in that space. Of course, we didn't know what that was when he was growing up. We said he marched to a different drummer, incredibly smart. We would have these late-night conversations for hours. He could communicate perfectly on AOL Instant Messenger. But he couldn't look you in the eye. And he had trouble saying things. He had to learn how to do all that stuff. And I had such admiration for him. I think the real life changer for me, though, was the day that our granddaughter was born because she came to us with Down syndrome. And um, we have some experience with that. My wife's youngest brother was born with Down syndrome, sadly with all of the heart and health issues associated with it, and he didn't make it past his 16th birthday. But Juliet is otherwise perfectly healthy, and the advice we were given when she was born from the Down Syndrome Association down here was two things. One is have the same expectation, but realize they're going to get there on the scenic route. And that mindset, I think, can be applied universally. And it's part of the fun of being a writer is you're taking these people along the scenic route to get where they need to go. And it's what you see on that scenic route is where the real beauty is and where the real learning is, too. Wow. So you've been writing about me and David and all that. David hears voices, you know, tells him what to do, and, and I'm, I'm the Asperger boy and, and LGBT. You're, you just got us all in the same room here. That's the funny part is my, we have many LGBT friends. I, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I had parents that were incredibly inclusive before it was cool. So our house was filled with every possible person that there was out there. Um, and all my LGBT friends say, why did you make Alexandra like me? Why is she so like me? What about that, the way she does things, you're obviously telling my secrets. And I would tell her, no. I just, it's just from what I've known about people like you and my embracing of that, that group, 
as the human beings, the valuable human beings that they truly are, that was the fascination. So um, I, I love that dimension of the story is to be able to have a walk away from it with a better understanding about people that you didn't know so well in the beginning. And because you're from Michigan, I'm, I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm a Spartan, so I went to Michigan State. <laughs> so, although I love Bo Schenbeckler, I love the uh, U of M's uh, back then. <laughs> yeah, well, Grand, Grand Rapids is the one city in Michigan that seems to be immune to any economic problems. <laughs> that you guys always figure out a way to make it work over there. Yeah, it's it's the mess. Oh, did I say something? <laughs> <laughs> That's the other part of the story. There you go. Um, wow. Uh, so what do you want people to get out of the books when they read them? So uh, besides the story and the entertainment and all that comes through, um, at the end of the book, do you want them to take home something? I'm glad you asked that question because the whole reason – that I ended up writing that book was that I'm hoping to draw, to do two things. One is to help the Latino community feel more comfortable about engaging with law enforcement for mutual benefit. And then the second thing is I want to see more young women become cops. Originally before the COVID stuff happened, uh, Tracy, the, the, the person who lived that life and I were going to go on the road and we picked eight cities that we knew had two things. One was that they had a very well-organized Latino community with a center where we could make a presentation. And the second was that there was a, a female cop organization there. And what my game plan was, I have a trailer for the book, and um, we would start by playing that. Then I would come out and I'd say, meet Tracy Ruiz. She is Jessica Ramirez. And then just turn it over to her and let her tell the story. And then if they want to buy the books at the end, that's fine. But what I was really hoping to do is that when I'm hoping that young girls will be able to read Chasing Vega and see themselves in one of those roles, either in the Jessica or the Alexandra role. Um, and if that happens even for one person, that will be enough. Because I really think what happens is in a lot of these things is you can't go in it for the money. You can't go in it for yourself. You have to think about how what you do is going to benefit others. And in my writing, I always try and think about how when people are done with it, they're going to say, I have a better understanding about a situation, or I have more self-confidence that maybe I can be one of those heroes, too. Kind of uh, going down the same line, I'm just wondering, you've written hundreds of uh, motivational essays. Do you find that you kind of draw that positivity into your work, or do you sometimes kind of go in the, in the opposite direction? Well, as, uh, as Mike knows from being a Spartan, there are only like six things. <laughs> there are six facts, six or seven facts that are out there that in, in the motivational space. And every book ever written, just it's all we become what we think about, and attitude is everything. Take your body, take care of your body, you get to keep it longer, save half of your income. It's those things never change. And in the same vein, all these stories we tell are a little bit different version of the same thing. I remember uh, back when I was a disc jockey, I interviewed Judy Collins, and she said, every song has been written. My job is to make an interpretation of the poetry in a new way that connects to a new audience. Um, and you, you hear that across the spectrum. Uh, Stanley Kubrick said the same thing. Every movie's been done. Every shot's been shot. How can I do it differently so I can make a tighter connection with my audience? 
I think that's what the goal is for us as writers, is that we have to take these commonalities and figure out new ways to say them so they make a difference. I can't tell you how many times I've done stand-up speeches about those the seven things they don't teach you in college. I give it a different title every year when I go out when I used to go out on the road and do that. And you would think that, you know, Mike, that we were talking about something we were, we had invented some cure for cancer. People would come afterwards. I never thought about that, but it's these time-tested golden rule type things that are have never changed. And our challenge is how can we illuminate them in a way that inspires others to want to live them? Wow. Uh, did you ever worry about the, um, let's say, the, the current situation with cancel and culture and, uh, and maybe, because you touch off on a lot of characters, a lot of different types of people, um, do you ever get worried about maybe saying or writing the wrong thing? My wife does. I mean, she's the, she's the final arbiter in everything that I write, and she'll tell me if she thinks I've gone too far. Um, but one of the things that does concern me about the cancel culture is that um, we have to be willing to listen to everybody's opinion, and we have to be willing to read and study everything and draw our own conclusions. For example, the Dr. Seuss books that are coming out of circulation right now, um, it's important to understand the environment that that guy was in when he was writing them and the forces that built his point of view from that time, and then to try and peel back and see what we can take away from that that's valuable. For example, my, my little COVID uh, story that I wrote called uh, Julia of the Mystery Bug teaches kids, aims to teach kids about masking and hand washing and social distancing, and I wrote it in tetramic pentameter, which is the Dr. Seuss style. And for a while, when I was promoting it, I was saying, written in the style of Dr. Seuss. Well, I took that out, because now that's a cancel culture thing. But I think it's dangerous. Once we start telling people what they shouldn't be doing, then we're entering um, kind of dangerous waters. Um, we have to trust that smart people will be able to draw their own conclusions from reading a wide body of work. Once we just zero in, this is the thing that bugs me about Facebook. I'm sure it does to you too, right? It's a big echo chamber for people that believe what we do. Yep. Or it isn't. Or, you know, you find somebody that's on the total other end of the spectrum that you never knew, and all of a sudden they're hating you, and you've been friends for 25 years, and it blows up because of some stupid thing you posted. I think the best thing we can do as writers is to open up people's minds to the possibilities that are out there, whether it's the ideas we talk about or the people we introduce them to, so they can think about them maybe in a way that they never thought about them before. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I'm very um, forward, very colorful, as they call me. And I can, I can get myself into trouble, but I don't, because I think because I own who I am, and I've always been this way. Um, but with things like, we also have to be careful, because with things like the Dr. Zeus, we have to draw the line and, and understand who is just, really canceling and who's not um, because I think in their case in that particular case that was themselves making a marketing right. sort of yep. way you know they presented it they didn't have to do that they stepped out and then they made it a deal where they become all of a sudden a trend they're trending all of a sudden and it's, it, it, it's good for them and bad for them you know um, 
I, I, I think it's one of those where it's very, it's hard to decide who's, who's trying to be legit and who's not. Yeah. Um, well, there's always yeah. this fear we're going to alienate somebody, and then that ends up in, that ends up for them. It, it impacts the money, right? Because people are going to stop buying the entire Seuss cannon if they don't deal with it. If if I were those people, I think probably what I would have done is I would have tried to initiate a conversation about those books and why people are, you know, I, I would have a panel at at, at um, a major conference where I would have people on both sides of the issue talking about why it is that that's such a big concern and why we need to be sensitive to those issues and let them hash it out. And that's why I love going to BoucherCon and ThrillerFest and stuff like that is that you get these guys in the panel, all things about this, especially the authors that have, that have made enough money that they don't care anymore and say anything they want. It's, it's great to hear them debate stuff because there is no real one truth, right? I mean, there's all points of view. And the first thing you learn as a writer is how to communicate in different points of view. And I think perhaps, you guys tell me what you think about your writing, but I think that's the most fun thing about being an author is that you get to inhabit, you get to set up these arguments. Allie and Jess are arguing all the time. Jess and her boyfriend, they, they, you know, even in their most romantic moments, they're arguing about stuff because they're thinking they, they have different points of view about how they think things should work out. And that's life. As Paul Simon says, life is a negotiation. So I don't think we should ever stop negotiating. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and Michael Hawley there, he's, he's made enough money to retire. He's, he's rich. <laughs> and uh, so we could get him in on that. But um, why do you write detectives for adults as well as kids? And, and, and I say that there must be a difference in the way you're writing, and also there must be a different point of view you're trying to get across. You know, I didn't really know what, a, you know, again, this was part of a therapeutic thing for me to try and find purpose in my life. So the first thing that I thought of was, you know, I had this friend and who was a cop and had had a horrible situation. I felt empathy for her. Um, I actually wrote a scene, that the, the scene that is absolutely true in that book about Tracy is the story that Allie tells to her uncle in the middle about the, the strip joint. About when they're, when she's undercover at that, at that strip joint. That actually happened to Tracy. Now what happened at the end never took place. So that, that whole thing was never resolved for her. And it was a horrible, horrible situation that she still thinks about in a very negative way. But part of what I wanted to do was I wanted to pack something on the end where these bad guys really got their comeuppance. And, and that was, that was kind of the fun part about telling that story is is doing that but i really don't know i'm still trying to figure out where my joy is um my friend danielle gerard uh tells me that we can write in any we're craftspeople we can write in any genre we just have our favorites and i didn't believe her and she said try writing kid stuff and um uh, that happened parallel with a conversation with my grandson i was bringing him home from school one day and he said grandpa do you have a job <laughs> And I said, yeah, I write stories. You guys probably have heard this, too, from your families, right? And they say, well, will you write a story that stars me? So all of a sudden I'm thinking about how can I write a story about a nine-year-old, you know? And that's how Hudson and the Missing Tiger happened, is, is um, I tried to write a story that would work for him. And it 
turned out to be one of the projects I got going right now as I was talking to his history teacher in fourth grade and saying, what's your biggest challenge? And she says, I can't get people excited about Sir Walter Raleigh and Virginia Dare's baptism. So I began to think about that, and I said, well, what if we, what if we create time travel? What if time travel was possible and it could be used for research and you take two of the students from your class back there so they get to actually meet Sir Walter Raleigh and ask him the questions themselves? And that is turned into a book which is coming out this fall called Students in Time, where I basically took the entire fourth grade history curriculum and put it into this big time travel thriller where these two young kids, uh, a, a boy and a girl, go with their history teacher back in time and study everything from uh, you know, coming over from England to the first, the first settlers to the end of the American Revolution. And that has been so much fun to write that. Uh, because I read it to my grandson, and he's the absolute most visceral critic there is. He doesn't sugarcoat it. I can tell when I've written too much because he says, Grandpa, can we be done now? You know? You don't even get that from your three-star people on Amazon. <laughs> no, no. I get much worse. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, so does, does it matter to you what your, what, what your critics think? Like, you know, with social media, we were touching off on that, and there's all of this noise going on. Um, does it take the attention away from you? Does it make it harder for you to write when you get people that are n not liking you so much? You know, I got a great gift a long time ago from uh, a boss who told me that um, what we had to do was that we were going to get feedback in a lot of different ways. And a lot of times there is emotion connected to feedback. You know, I've had readers argue with me about what Jess would or wouldn't do. And even Tracy, she doesn't like when I let Jess show any emotion because Tracy compartmentalizes everything. Um, but the, the, I think the real kind of key there is to um, um, allow yourself to really try and understand the various factors that are contributing to the person as they are right now. And even in the feedback situation, when people call and complain, there's something else going on. I mean, I, I believe that every one of us gets up in the morning and try and puts on this superhero suit and that we hope that we're not going to be found out during the course of the day, that we're able to get away with it for another day. And writers, you guys know this, there's nothing worse than looking at a blank page at the beginning of a new book. I mean, Mike, with your, with your canon, I'm sure it's happened to you. Every book that you've started, you say, I'm never going to be able to top the last one. They're going to hate this. They're going to hate me. And you just have to pl plug ahead, right? <laughs> he likes being hated. That's okay. He enjoys yeah. it. <laughs> but the feedback, you know, what you do is you, it, there's the old joke that there's a, there's a pony in every manure pile. You have to peel that stuff back to find what you can use in terms of valuable feedback so you can become better at whatever it is you're doing. And then let the rest of it go. Very hard because some of it can be very personal. But if you can learn to depersonalize it and to take the gifts that are there, then you become much more powerful, much more confident, and your work is better. And that, at the end of the day, is what it's all about, becoming better at what you do. One of the funniest things, uh, author Nick Thacker, I saw him, he's, he does a video <laughs> uh, every month or so, and he's sitting in his bathtub, and he's drinking wine, and he reads the worst reviews he gets. It's really fun. It's it, you just the way he does it is so good because he answers them kind of like it's just great. It's just uh, I thought it was the funniest. Um, 
Okay, so speaking of bad reviews and stuff, where do people find you? Do you have a website that you like people to find you at or a place to go and they can send you hate mail and stalk you? Terry at TerrySheppard.com is the email address. TerrySheppard.com is the website. Um, I'm uh, VT Shep on, uh, um, on Twitter. D-E-T Jess Ramirez is Jessica's Twitter handle. She's a lot more fun than I am um, and has a lot more friends. It's it's that's been an ego thing for me that my protagonist is more popular than I am, um, but I'm also on Facebook. Terry Shepard writes on Facebook, uh, Instagram, everywhere. If you do a search search for Terry Shepard on Google, it will all be there. And TerryShepard.com has links to everything. Great, and of course we're going to have you up on the website and stuff. And we we really suggest to everyone listening now to send him all of your hate. Ah! <laughs> I no. love feedback. It's the breakfast of yeah. champions. Bring it on, yeah. Yeah, he likes it. He wants to be tortured. Um, so, hey, I was just 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 a curious point um, with this weird year and how you've mentioned it a few times. You know all the dark stuff and everything going on. Um, does that affect your writing? And I mean, not you know, of course, writing about COVID, but just all of the darkness around you. If you're having a bad time, does it kind of seep in, and do you end up finding yourself writing? a little darker or maybe the other way and kind of trying to brighten things up like it does it affect what you do well it's been I'm an introvert by nature I had to learn to be an extrovert to survive in the world so being able to be locked up every day in this little office has been wonderful I like that dimension of it I like not having to talk to people um, but <laughs> I also realized that I have an opportunity to help others who are struggling with the same thing so I try purposely to go three times, three or four times a week through a drive-through someplace at Arby's or something, just so I can talk to those people and say, "How are you doing?" and try and find something that I can use, say to them that um, can bring make their day a little bit better. I think that's what we're supposed to be here for is to do that, and I hope that my writing takes people there. Jeez, oh, I go through the drive-through and scream at them. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I would never do that. Well. It's certainly been a pleasure um, entertaining. You should get into radio. You've got good ah, Thank you. I do narrate. I've got, uh, <laughs> I did uh, a Broken Promise, uh, uh, a book for uh, Donna Wilberg um, about the paranormal, and I just finished um, one for Louise Dawn, um, Siren in the Wind. So I do, I do book narrations. It wasn't something I went out doing on purpose, but, um, you know, when you're in radio, you know how to do inflection and take on characters, and that's been fun, too. Well, you do. I don't. Uh, <laughs> but that's great. That's fantastic. We're we're so glad that you were here with us today, and you should see his library. He's got it. He's on video, and he's just got this huge book library. <laughs> um, what Al yeah. figured out, guys, is that it's it's a fake background. But if you if, if I were to turn it off, I do have a big bookcase behind me that's a mess with a lot of books yeah. in it. Just reading it, the best research. Playboy. Thank you so much, guys. It's been great. It's great to meet you all. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, it was good. It's good. We found out a lot about our guest. Our guest um, is Terry Shepard, and we were talking about uh, his writing and uh, chasing Vega and uh, all sorts of things. We found out that he was a meth user and uh, threw someone <laughs> off the Grand Canyon. And, uh, <laughs> I carry it. Boy, he's, yeah. He's quite the guy. Um, so be careful. Um, well, again, thank you very much, Terry Shepard. Thank you. 
To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! How dare you? If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.